Hey everyone, great to be here with you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And I have an ad, it's actually an ad for myself. Uh, it is to let you know that my new book is out. It's called Rest, Refocus, Recharge, A Guide for Optimizing Your Life, published by Harper Collins. Very, very excited about this. Took a long time to write and research and pull together. Um, it was super challenging, but I'm really happy with how where we landed on it. Basically, this is all came coming out of a place where when we did the ripple effect, it was great, but everyone would speak to me afterwards and be like, these ideas are awesome, but I'm just so busy, I don't have time. So what I wanted to do was to provide everyone with ideas for how to integrate these ideas about health, well-being, high performance into your life in a very, very easy, very, very um, tactical way that you can actually integrate. So for example, taking a couple of breaths to relax or to calm down if you're stressed, or what are some super healthy snacks that you can use in the middle of the day that are easy, cheap, and fast to make, or how do you take a great vacation uh, and completely disconnect? And then we grounded all of that in the latest science around neurophysiology and how the brain works to optimize creativity, learning, problem solving, and concentration. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're psyched to hear, learn more and to explore those ideas, I would be infinitely grateful if you wanted to pick up a copy of the book. It's available at Amazon in Canada and the States. Just search Greg Wells and Rest, Refocus, Recharge, and you'll find it. It's also on Indigo um, and all of the bookstores in Canada if you want to check that out. Uh, Neil Pasricha, the number one best-selling author of You Are Awesome, described it as a prescription for space in a world of noise. So really pleased to um, have had that little support moment from from Neil and he's been on the show if you want to check him out. So thanks for considering it. Really appreciate it. I'm really proud of the book. I know it's going to be super helpful for you. So if you want to pick up a copy, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining me for another episode. Today, we're going to interview and chat with Adam Creek. Adam's a longtime colleague of mine and super fortunate to have met him when I was able to bring him to U of T. And he did a guest lecture for my class. And it was one of the uh, most popular sessions for that class and really excited to be able to bring him back. Adam's uh, rower, formerly, and Olympic champion in men's eight, which is one of the toughest events at the Olympic Games. And uh, his description of what that is like is quite profound. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Um, Adam also led an expedition to row across the Atlantic, uh, ultimately ended up in an accident very close to Florida, uh, was, you know, the boat capsized, was trapped, uh, escaped. He and his team were safe eventually, but uh, that was uh, another just wild experience that that he has, of which there are absolutely many. Adam has morphed and grown into a leadership consultant and expert, and so we're super excited to have him here today to talk about resilience and mindset and high performance in general. So no more delays. Let's get into this conversation with my friend and colleague, Olympic gold medalist in rowing, Adam Creek. Adam, thanks for joining us, buddy. 
It's great to be here, Greg. Awesome. Good, Good to, to see you again. Good to catch yeah. up. It's been a while since you were at U of T guest lecturing for my class and they, um, mm-hmm. they loved you. And so it's good to reconnect again. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. I always love what you're putting out there. And hopefully we can dig into some interesting stuff that the listeners uh, benefit from. Yeah, no, we definitely will. So let's start at the beginning, just because my audience may not know your entire background. Let's talk about you, the athlete, and you know, your, how you got into rowing and you know, how you discovered being, uh, you know, getting to the Olympic Games and all that sort of stuff. Okay, go all the way back. The origin to the story. Yeah. The origin story. <laughs> I grew up in London, Ontario, a very average town in Canada. In fact, it was very, quite very average. Uh, you know, companies would test their products in London, and if it was successful in London, it would be successful all across Canada. We Interesting. Of white collar, blue collar, you know, different demographics, immigrants, long-standing Canadians. Yeah. Just a good, good mix of Canadiana. Average kid, average town. I had a pretty average family and uh, didn't really have my sights set on the Olympics from uh, when I was a kid. I was just active, had lots of energy, did a lot of different things. Played the tuba, the trumpet, basketball, football. Uh, Tried all these different sports camps at the local university at Western University and uh, tried out this rowing sports camp. And the coaches there said, hey, you've, you've got potential in this, but didn't think very much of it. Then in grade 11, uh, a parent started a rowing program at my high school. Hmm. And I thought, oh, I should try this out. These guys said I'd, you know, I'd be okay at it. So I tried out the rowing at my high school. And my coach, he was a parent of one of the girls on our team, he took me aside. He said, Adam, you're an Olympian. You just don't know it yet. No way, really? How cool? Yes. <laughs> and so he had identified, he had you know, the right body type, the right uh, uh, sort of mindset. And so he just planted the seed of opportunity. And it was something that I, I toyed with, but he was a great coach as, you know, for those of your, the listeners out there who are coaches, he, he gave, I think, some of the best advice. He said, don't go too hard too early. Wow. Stay diverse, be a multi-sport yeah. athlete. If you want to be excellent at the highest level, you have to have a diverse athletic background when you're younger. And it makes you stronger, more resilient. And there's a lot of different physiological and psychological benefits from having multiple sports. But that's what he pushed me to do. So I played basketball, football, I lifted weights, and I rode. And that's cool. what I did throughout high school. I played the tuba too, which was <laughs> great for lung capacity. Right. Um, and then after high school, I took off. I went and I worked in northern Alberta on an oil rig. So wow. slam steel, minus 50, cold, hard labor, uh, rough culture um and i think it actually kind of toughened me up for the sport uh and then i came down to victoria uh, on the west coast victoria british columbia uh, where i uh, went to uvic got coached under howie campbell and we won a couple of canadian university rowing championships had some great athlete mentors to follow guys like kevin light joe stank vicious mm-hmm. and they sort of pulled me along to uh, to the national team. And we, I, I did the under 23s where we won the world championships. And then we went to the senior national team and we won the first world championships ever for Canada in the men's eight, which was pretty cool. Uh, then we went to the Athens Olympics after winning. We won the Seville World Championships, Milan World Championships, a whole bunch of World Cups. And then, um, and then we went to Athens as the favorites and just choked. We fell apart. And it was like, 
big guys, spandex, muscly, crying, sobbing. It was it was bad. No way. So yeah. tell me all about that because we can dig into the success, but it's often the yeah. that, like are the real insights, right? So. Oh yeah, you know we learn. I think we learn more from failure, especially that when it like it hits us at the core and yeah. it, it strikes at our identity, and uh, we feel really insecure through the failure. And so I learned. You, you learned a lot of things. One, I learned that you need to emotionally process failure and give space to emotionally process failure, mm. especially if you're feeling it very, very deeply. Um, and I've seen this even in my, my executive coaching practice when. Uh, people, the board comes in and they oust the, the senior executive and they feel like they've really messed up. Right. Uh, or, uh, you know, someone takes a big risk, a business risk, and they lose all their investors' money, their money, their parents' money, their, you know, their wife's parents' money. And so these are deep-seated, I'm talking about deep-seated failures where it's, it's heavy. It's really, yeah. really heavy. And... <clears throat> So usually we're cognitive, we're smart, and we want to j- jump to the, okay, what did we learn? How can I apply this? How can I prevent this from happening? But yeah. your body has this, this deep, innate intelligence that we often try to bypass. And we need to create space for a body to actually process failure so that we can emote it and express it. And when, when, we, when we're able to express and explore our emotion in very you know, physical, base, you know, limbic system type ways, we can actually get through it and then then actually take our learnings apply them and and, and move forward yeah um, so i think that was one of the biggest lessons from that failure was was learning how to create space to express um you know to express this deep-seated failure so i could let it go and actually take the cognitive learnings and apply them and so you know part of it was just you know, aerobic activity is a great way to explore emotional failure so you're going out for like a long run, a long yeah. cycle, a long you know cross country ski, a row, that kind of thing, and you're alone, and you start exploring the thought. And I know I've had this happen before, where I just I become overwhelmed with emotion, and like I'm you know I'm crying while I'm you know on the bike yeah. or in the run, and I'm like completely in camp in nature, and there's just something that just needs to be. And I don't quite understand it, but I just, I let it go and uh, I'm a healthier human after it. And I've known a number of like these executives that I've coached have gone through similar processes and it's allowed them, you know, to let go of these failures of the past so that they can set, set the goals that they're able to achieve in the future, right? Because we can, we can fear failure for two reasons. One, we've failed in the past mm-hmm. and we're scared of, of uh, making that happen again. Or we've never failed and we've always been very successful. And so, you know, I have this identity of being a very successful person. And so I'm not going to take the appropriate risk because I can't, you know, I can't ruin that, you know, straight A student, you know, reputation that I have for my expectation I have for my, that's the worst one, the expectation I have for myself or I feel other people has, but it's, you know, having deep seated failure is more important for people who have high personal standards. If you have mm. high personal standards, then failure really, really hits you at the core. And uh, and so one, you know, through that I learned I learned how to emotionally process failure. So I could, I call it reflecting uh, and you know, creating space to do that. And then you can learn cognitively, uh, grow and let it go. But then when we talk about learnings, what did I actually learn from the failure one? Like, and then let's get down just like the cognitive list of 
things I learned. Want to yep. get into that? Sure. So one, so when you're when you're warming up in <laughs> in a in a hot hot environment for yep. a power endurance event, you don't need to spend as much time warming up. Right. So if I if I'm competing in 36 degrees Celsius weather, it's very different from competing in 21 degrees Celsius weather. Yeah. And so if I'm competing in 21 degrees Celsius weather, I might need to warm up for 30, 40 minutes. But if I'm competing in 36 degrees Celsius weather, uh, the warm up needs to be a lot shorter just because yeah. the ambient temperature is so much higher. And, and so it was only you know, 20, 18, 20 minutes, a you know, much smaller uh, period of time for actually warming up. And uh, cooling down was very important too. Uh, Use it like cool, you know, cool showers. And we had uh, you know, these vests that we'd wear that would suck the heat out of our body after training and competition. Um, another thing we learned about was uh, was how to share leadership and uh, have more resiliency on the team. So mm. we had more of a hierarchical model where we were very reliant upon one member of our team and. At the Athens Olympic, this one member of the team you know, broke down. You know, in retrospect, you could see the seeds of the breakdown showing up through leading into the Athens Olympics. Uh, but we didn't have, you know, instead of having a team of leaders on our boat, we had one leader. Right. And when the one leader broke, we didn't have enough people who could come in and uh, put their fingers in the dam. You know, yeah. dam breaks. If one person puts their finger in and then their finger breaks, you need to have a few other people yeah. who can do that. So we had we had far more leadership capacity. When we talk about leadership, it's about influencing. So can can uh, can I influence the team? And then can you, Greg, influence the team? And can then uh, Kyle influence the team? And Brian influence the team? And then can can we share this influence mm-hmm. and share the vision? And then when I fail, Kyle will pick up. And when Brian fails, I'll pick up. And uh, when you know we we pass around the the idea of leadership instead of the leadership model is more like a jazz band instead of a conductor. Got so it. if the conductor, you have a great conductor yeah. and the conductor is infallible, you can have a great performance, but the conductor fails. He's got conducting tendonitis in his elbow yeah. and everything falls apart. Uh, but if you have something like a jazz band, you're playing in the jazz band, you know, then I pass, you know, I take the solo on my tuba and then I pass it to you on your saxophone and then someone else picks it up on the bass guitar yeah. and it's it's a bit more organic. And this works, this idea of shared leadership works on in smaller groups from an organizational development standpoint. If you're having, you know, working with 50, 100 people, you need to have a bit more of a hierarchical uh, system. But for small teams, this idea of shared leadership is really, um, you know, it's resilient, um, it's agile, it's lean, it's, it's, uh, it's all the things that we want in, in great teamwork. So that's what we learned. Um, we learned to have shorter warm-ups and hot weather. Yeah. We learned how to share uh, share leadership. Uh, we learned how to you know, manage nerves and expectations a little bit more. You know, when you're at the Olympic Games, it's unlike anything else because you have like the world is watching you. You're channeling it's almost to this spiritual force where you're, mm-hmm. you're channeling the energy of the world through yeah. you as you, you perform. And uh, the first time we went through, people will try to explain it to you and prepare you for. The, the feeling of the Olympic Games, but it's it is a feeling, and as much as we use words, it's better to feel a feeling than you know to mm-hmm. read about it or think about it or imagine yeah. it. And so, we just had the experience of being in the lion's den and feeling the fire and feeling you know the breath of you know the, 
competition and their sharp teeth and their saliva you know, near our face. And I think that that was useful um, just to have the have the experience. So, you know, the failure failures taught us a bunch of things. And you know, me in particular, you know, letting being able to process the emotion, the deep emotion of failure, sort of taught me taught me how to warm up more effectively in hot climates. Yeah. <laughs> it taught me how to share share leadership, and to just uh, taught me how to deal with you know high stress, high high pressure situations. Very cool. And so, how did you guys translate those learnings to a much different scenario four years later? Well, it, it's interesting because we had we had five guys on our team that were in Athens and then four guys who were new and one of the big influencers and I, I did a TED talk about him. He, he's an absolutely the best competitor and racer that I think I'd ever, ever encountered in my entire you know, athletic career. It's got Jake Wetzel and he came on, he won silver medal in Athens Olympics and he had, um, you know, he ended up, you know, joining our eight for the, the Beijing Olympic campaign and he had a slightly different philosophy of, you know, of racing and training than other people did. So the culture, you know, there's different ways that you can, you can, you can merge cultures. One culture can overtake the other, or another one can, or you can create a new culture. And that seemed to be what we did, like bringing on these four new guys of, you know, of Jake and Burns and Malcolm and, um, Who's the fourth guy that we brought on? Dom, yeah, Dominic, and each of these guys brought in you know different perspectives and 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 energies, and it wasn't about redemption for us. Hmm. I have to say, when we were going to Athens, it was not about redemption. You know, redemption story is a great story. It's a great story to tell. It's a great story to experience. If you if you feel the need to be redeemed and you feel redeemed by an experience, that's that's very powerful, but that wasn't our story. Um, our story was one of seizing opportunity. Wow, that's so had, cool. That's so different, right? Because it could have been so easy to go down the other road, but mm-hmm. you thought about opportunity instead. Super cool. And so, and that was, uh, I think, a lot of that was driven by you know, by Jake. And to a certain extent, when you're when you're seeking redemption, you're looking back. But when you're seizing opportunity, you're looking forward. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was it was all about seizing the moment. And it was, you know, I get chills even just thinking about it because we were so lucky. We were so lucky to have such a, a great group of athletes that would come together. You know, eight athletes. We had one of the best coxswains, you know, steers, coaches, steersmen uh, in the world. You know, very, very well experienced, one of the best coaches in the world. And uh, just a lot of pieces really came together for us to have you know, an incredible run and an incredible um, uh, Olympic experience. So it was, it was an opportunity. You know, luck is about being able to go 100% when opportunity shows its face. And, mm. you know, thank God we were able to do that. So tell me about the race in the subsequent Olympics. Like walk me through that. What's it feel like? Like take people through the men's rowing eights final and what it feels like to be out there in that environment, cross the finish line, like lead us through because it's, I've had it described as like lifting 
in a whole bunch of different ways. I won't get into it. I'll let you do it. But yeah. like, I, I would love to know what it was like for you. Well, there's, I'm going to put a shameless plug for my book in this because one, I'm really proud of it. I wrote, I wrote up our Olympic race and it's really great. It's probably one of the best pieces of sports writing. Um, well, it's the best piece of sports writing I've ever written. <laughs> cool. it's, it's great. So if you like sports yeah. writing, chapter three, ethic three in the, in, in the book, but an Olympic, the Olympic rowing race, I, I'm going to take a couple steps back just because okay. I think you've got more athletic nerds listening. Is that right? I right? definitely most certainly do. There's okay. a lot of okay. triathletes and, and swimmers okay. and stuff like that. So people love suffering and they love to like understand what's going on for sure. Okay. So it's the, the Olympic race starts, um, well, it starts two days before the Olympic race starts two days before, because we do, we do a warm up. And we do a simulation and then we do one minute as hard as you possibly can. We take a break and you do one minute as hard as you possibly can. And then you're done. And that's the work two days before the Olympic race. And so you need to be able to show up and do that and prime your body. You know, you've been training for, you know, for four years for this moment. Like this is, this is the start of the Olympic race is two days before when you're okay. actually doing your warm up, And then the day before we get up and we, we practice the warm up before a race in the morning we practice the, the morning warm up because you, you, we were racing in the afternoon. So we get up in the morning, we practice our warm up for the following day, which is you know, rowing out. Then we'd row down the course and our coxswain would, would call the different calls with eight people working together you need to have everybody on the same page so going down the course every 250 meters to every 45 seconds of this five and a half minute race we'd have a different focus that we could each write you know four or five page essays on these these couple words so there's very high resolution on what each word meant um so we do did that warm up, go back, relax, and then we come back and we do our our race warm up. So we practice our race warm up, get warmed up, do uh, and do like a forty five second minute burn off the line, paddle in, do another race simulation, visualize it. The night before, we'd sit in the get together as a team, we discuss the race and we'd just do a visualization session where you picture yourself, the coxswain would talk you through it. So you're, again, you're picturing the race, you're picturing where all the other boats are. And so you're re- like rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Again, following morning, you wake up, you've done it before, you've practiced this a bunch of times. Um, you've got your diet dialed in, practice the race, you rehearse it, and then you come out and it's, it's game time, right? It's real, like, it's do or die. You know, this is this is the Olympics, and so you get. I'm getting, <laughs> getting nervous actually reliving this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're, you're channeling a lot of nerves, uh, and you know your nerves are there to help me. Nerves. Our Olympic coach, he said, like, "Hey, you're you're not going to to win an Olympics, Gregory, <laughs> unless you're nervous." <laughs> you know, you, you, <laughs> so, like that's what he would say. He's like, yeah. "Oh, oh, you're nervous." good (laughs) (laughs) and so you're there and you're i do a couple you know hard strokes on the rowing machine on land and then we get get on the water and we did a very short like i said you know 18 20 minute on water workout everyone dials in 
um, do start with light strokes and then do some harder strokes, get up to pace, get your body just, you know, you know, and it's breathing, you know, the aerobic system, anaerobic systems are engaged, but you haven't pushed so hard that you've burned up glycogen. And so you're just, you're like a race dog. It's, you know, you're just, yeah. you're ready to go and you're, you're feeling very animalistic um, at this time. So you're sitting, you get into the start blocks. You have to be in the start blocks two minutes before the race begins. So you get in there and you're like, I want to go now, but I've had to yeah. wait. <clears throat> and so they pull through all the, the countries. Uh, they make sure everything's in line. And then eventually it's a light, you know, light that goes from uh, red to green and a buzzer and a flag and a guy who speaks. So there's four, they have four ways to start the race. Yeah. And so the race, the race starts, you know, attention, bang, you go off first five strokes, creatine phosphate system, free strokes, pull as hard as you fucking can, right? Just go, go, go ape shit. There's no holding back. And we would practice those, by the way, we practice those first five strokes hundreds and hundreds of times. And we would gain, like, we would always win. We'd always win the first five strokes, which was great. And so you get the, you get the boat because you're, again, you've got two tons of weight sitting still and you have to overcome that inertia and get the boat up to speed. So um, five strokes gets the boat up to speed. You get the boat up, you're, you're um, striking at about 52 strokes per minute which is pretty, pretty high for those who, um, you know, who have experience in, in rowing or on the rowing machine, 52 strokes a minute. And then we would, we got up, so the hard first three, get the boat up 52 strokes a minute. Stroke 13 was, the, was a big stroke for us. It was the longest, hardest, most powerful stroke. And so we'd all unite around that. Oh, we set a rhythm and we'd, we'd settle down to like a, a 46 and just get, ton of speed and then we'd uh we get in long and linear and you're still carried by like the nerves of the start creatine phosphate you now you're into uh you know the anaerobic system you're you're still juiced then around 45 seconds to a minute your body goes through a transition so excess glycogen has been burned up and now you're you're switching into aerobic your aerobic system and you need to yeah um it really harness that and you're producing a lot of lactic acid. So your body has to metabolize that lactic acid, lots of free radicals, a lot of you know, self-induced pain, suffering. You start to you, know, you start to doubt, a lot of negativity comes into your brain, you start to feel a lot of pain. Uh, your your vision starts to change, you, it starts to sort of narrow in. You have you, sometimes you'll see in black and white, you start to see stars. Um, the but we had a everyone goes through the same physiological uh transformation because it's a power endurance type of event uh, at that same time so our strategy was well everyone is at this point and suffering we're gonna go no way everyone yeah so we would do like we would push extra hard and we were actually physiologically didn't doesn't make sense to do that but yeah. psychologically it can make a lot of sense because one the pain comes in and you're attacking it and you're mm. like, you're in the pit and then you're, I'm just going to go even more in the pit. But in this, in the rowing race, because it's a sprint and it's so short, five and a half minutes uh, and you're looking backwards. If you as the boat 
can take two seats, three seats on the opposition during this point in time, then then you've got your nose is in front. You've got them, you yeah. know, and you can see them. And when you can see them, then then you can mm-hmm. react to them. And so we would. So at that point in time, we flip over, and then we'd have a hundred strokes in the middle of the race. And so we slot into the hundred strokes in the race, and we just go hundred strokes. And it's you know when you're li- when you're taking a stroke, it's a, it's about the same weight as your you know as your body weight. Yeah. And so picture like doing a, a clean or something, and you're you're doing that forty times a minute with your body weight. Yeah. You know, in unison with with seven other you know gorillas <laughs> so you get you and we had different technical calls and we went and we even got we stretched out we got to a thousand meters which was halfway through and we had open water on the competition and but we we dug into a pit right yeah and so physiologically speaking the the most effective way to do this would be to you know go hard for five strokes and then go below your your race pace uh, hit your race pace at 500 meters hit your race pace at you know for 1000 to 1500 and then burn it all off for the last five that like physiologically that's you know kind of like a check mark yeah but we went like we did it a little bit differently and so then we crossed the the 1000 meter mark and all of a sudden the the british start charging the americans start charging the australians start charging like the, all the other they they're starting to come up and they they know because this is the way that we race. They're like, okay, this is where we get them. They, we're going to come and get them. So they come, they start charging. And then we had a move at the 1250 mark. And uh, this Jake Wetzel would describe it like this. So you're at the 1250 mark. And you know when you have someone and like you're playing in the swimming pool with them? Have you ever done this? Playing in the swimming pool? You take their head and you put them under the water. <laughs> I've right? never done that. Okay, so you're playing some picture. So picture. So you're picturing it's like you have you, you got your competitor and you have them yeah. and they have them under the water and at the thousand meter mark it's like you've let let them up and they're they're starting to get them like, oh I've got the breath I'm okay but yeah. then at the twelve fifty mark it's when you, you take them, them right back you, down you oh write them on and then that's when you like hold them there and just yeah you you kill them and that was the that was the twelve fifty um that was a twelve fifty move so we went and we so we pushed that and we stopped like they were charging on us twelve fifty we stopped their movement and so we started inching away but then we got to the 500 meter they started coming back again and so then we're starting we're in massive oxygen deficit but then we're we're going to burn off the rest of our like our anaerobic system we're going to completely empty the tank we're going to super saturate our body with um with lactic acid and you just want to you want to cross the finish line where there's no no way you can take another stroke and that was that was a personal goal for mine too like uh, just personally speaking when i thought of like what do i want to get out of this olympic experience yes like to win would be nice but for me i want to actually like i'm i enjoy the extremes of the human condition so i just like how deep can i go into the pit and like how how much can i hurt myself in this process <laughs> just kind of funny now that as i listen to myself yeah. say that but it was and so we go there and at the 400 meter mark remember we had the 13th stroke which was the biggest hardest longest stroke yeah. we um the second biggest hardest longest stroke was at the 400 meter mark where brian would call consolidate and at that point in time your mind is going everywhere right it's you're, you're present you're trying to stay focused on the guy in front do the calls but your your brain is shutting down because 
it's like it's like your brain's an energy hog, but it's being saturated with lactic yeah. acid and it can't deal with it. And you're kind of seeing your blackness and then light and and I guess, I guess you're you're deep in the pit, and then Brian says consolidate, and everyone can can commit to one stroke, and so everyone takes this one stroke, consolidate together, and you feel the speed of the boat, and then this is the magic of the rowing boat because when you feel the power of the men around you, it's it's intoxicating, and so mm -hmm. like wow, I've yeah. I want more, and so we we did that, and it's funny because we we planned that for one stroke, but then Brian, who was our coxswain, he'd been he called to consolidate again and again and again throughout those last 400 meters. He'd never done it ever before in the last eight years. He'd coxed with us. He never told us about it. But <laughs> did he like plan never... to do that or did, was it sort of a reaction? Oh, good for him. Oh, yeah. He had planned to do that. And so it was, it was perfect psychology because hmm. had, if we as rowers had known that we were going to do this again and again. Totally. And he, can't, and he can't do that over and over. You can do that at the Olympic final. Yeah. Like when it really matters. Like it's like the do it, but then after that, if you do that too many times, trust is completely lost. Right, and the meaning of that stroke is lost. But he just like he measured it perfectly because that was like the last race that we would ever do together as a, as a as a crew. And so we did that, and we then we break it down to power sevens. We just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then we were kind of the other boats were inching, but then we knew that we were going to win. And I remember just, I remember being concerned about the, the British uh, and I was watching them come at us and then Brian comes over and this is like, this is, this is the best part of like an athletic experience is the white moment. Have you ever heard the white, like the white moment? So it's, you know, and hopefully you'll recognize it. it's, it's when you, you, you get so deep in the pit that your, your, your vision and your system and everything is you go from from blackness to to bright white light and you're anointed with an incredible power and so it's we got to five strokes left and brian comes over the speakers and i, mean, I just think about this too and he goes like come on boys five more strokes and you're fucking olympic champions and all of a sudden i just feel um like anointment right from the heavens and it's just chills come down all the way down my spine and i go from being in the pit you know having no belief that i could take another stroke to saying i can take five more strokes and i just felt like my body just like it must have metabolized every last piece of yeah whatever and so take these five strokes and, and then you cross the finish line you're, we're across then you're like you collapse for 20 seconds while you just <laughs> and then you're hugging your friends and you're and it took oh you dig pretty deep in the pit it took like probably about six weeks to really just recover from that oh that my output because yeah. you were like just like you rip everything apart and you're like afterwards you're coughing because you've ripped your lungs apart yeah. so much it all's like the <laughs> yeah and uh um you know legs and muscles and i remember standing on the podium just being barely able to to stand <laughs> that's was, the best <laughs> you're there, you're like you're just <laughs> leaning everyone's leaning on each other trying yeah to get exactly awesome <laughs> oh, that oh was, my god so that was the you know that's the olympic race and it's um 
yeah, it was, yeah, it was an experience. Yeah. Sounds like it. Like that's, I've heard it described a few times, but that's by far the coolest rendition that I've, that I've heard of that, that description of that race before. That's pretty cool, man. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Um, And I'm watching you go through this and you're like, you're turning red and you're hyperventilating and I've got chills going and like, I'm going to listen to this when I'm out for a run sometime when I'm thinking like, oh, I'm kind of tired. I'm like, actually, no, you're not tired. You're nowhere even remotely close to tired. You're going to keep going. It's fine. (laughs) Well, even this is what our coach says. It's fine. You have a great coach and they stick with you for the rest of your life. You know, bless his soul. But uh, he would say, no, no. Even even when you're in the depths of pain and doubt in the middle of your rowing race, you're not only four-fifths dead. <laughs> yeah, that's and, and so he had he read some scientific study to say, like, you're like you're 80% alive. Like, yeah. There's so much more that you have in you. Totally. And, and I've heard that from the, the Navy SEALs as well, is that they, they actually train people to understand that when you are thinking that you are totally done you're actually about 20 to 30% towards your actual limits. So mm-hmm. our capabilities are so much greater than what we actually think they are. Oh, and that's, yeah. And it's, it's so true. And it's not, and that's why I think we have competition and that's, that's the benefit of it. And you can, you can find that in any level of competition. I've seen that even having been to the Olympics, but having coached juniors and masters and uh, you know college kids, it's, you know, you can find you can find that space, and competition is a great place to do it. Um, try you can find that in training too. I, I find it's a little more rare, but uh, it's a it's a good space. Tell me about rowing across the Atlantic because that's the next big sort of accomplishment <clears throat> that you went after, and the next big opportunity for learning and perspective, and not to make you like relive all of these moments and. Like you're going to be tired at the end of this interview. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. What I'm doing to you today is pretty miserable. Well, it's just let's just talk well, about miserable. all the most insane moments of your life and I like know. make you relive them. <laughs> but I think they're yeah. It, rowing across it's very different from the Olympic rowing race, right? Because yeah. the Olympic rowing race is very acute. Mm-hmm. Five and a half minutes of searing pain. Rowing across the ocean is, you know, for us, it was 73 days at sea. And you can't, you can't push yourself when you're, when you're at an adventure, when you're on an adventure where you're truly alone, we were alone. There are four of us. Let let me explain this for the listeners. People who don't might not understand what's happening. There's a 29 foot long rowing boat. It's kind of like the shape of a pill with a, it's cut out almost. If you think of a sailboat without the sails on it, we had rowing, gear strapped on top of it and we were alone so four guys alone in the middle of the ocean no support boat no nothing so it's you and three other people you're closer to you know the men and the women up in the space station than you are to anyone on land so that that's how alone you are so when we talk about pushing to your limit like a navy seal or like an olympic athlete you actually want to avoid doing that in the middle of the ocean because if you get there, you're like, who knows what's going to show up? Yeah. Uh, Because we had, there were a couple of times where we'd have these massive, I I call them growlers. They're rogue waves. Mm -hmm. You have waves that would come in between peak and trough was maybe 
you know, three or four meters. Uh, but then you have these growlers that would come and they would be the size of a three-story house. And they'd come and the waves would pile on top of each other. They'd make this this big wave that would break apart on the top and it'd just make this kind of yeah. noise. And it's just it's like in your chest and your adrenal glands and your stomach and your throat. And just, I should not be here. <laughs> this is not supposed to be happening right now yeah well it's, oh my God. it's supposed to be happening yeah but not, not with but you me nearby yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the and so we had it was about 10 days in and it was about it was a gibbous moon it was uh it, we were off the coast of africa and we got we got picked up by one of these waves it came picked us up right to the top it slammed overhead it hit Jordan, uh, Jordan, we were tied in. We had safety harnesses, and he would have been gone had we not been strapped in. But we go, we surf down the side of this wave, like it smashes us. We surf down. The guys in the cabin fall on top of each other and just get smashed and rattled around. And yeah, we hit the bottom of the wave into the trough. The oar digs in. The oar snaps. And Whoa. we're just like some of our stuff, sundry on deck, start to float away, and we're just like at the limit. And yeah. so we we go and we deploy um, we deploy sea anchor and we put it out there, and we're just we're going away. And so there, there I was, I was for, Mother Nature pushed me to my limit on that point. This right. was not this was not self inflicted. And I remember afterwards, I went, actually went through severe shock. Like afterwards, this happened the first, the first time I didn't go through severe shock. I had like some kind of a shock response. I was like, okay. But the second one, this happened twice. We broke two oars. When the second, from the second time the oar oar broke, I remember sitting there and just being, I was dazed. I was in a different, I was in a different state. It was definitely like I'd taken a drug or something. My body was like, holy fuck, you need to... We need to recover from this. Yeah, and I remember Jordan looking at me and saying, "Are you okay, man?" I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> not. I'm, I'm not. And so it, it was actually it was pretty like because it's a lot of work on there. They gave, um, they gave me like an extra shift, just like lie down and just yeah. process through all of that because it was again, it was like at the limit and there's a lot of just hormones that needed to be processed and uh, um, recovered from the the stress of of being battled around but then there are other times like this is there are other times it was really benign and boring and i'd say this was actually the most magical point of it and what would bring me back out there is when you know the waves are you know they're a few feet high maybe a meter high and the wind's behind you and it's 21 degrees Celsius. It's a cool breeze. There's fish swimming by your boat at the day at night. There's the ocean glows green with phosphorescence and dolphins are lighting it up and there's stars and there's moon bows and there's all these crazy natural phenomenon that you're like, wow, it's beautiful. And then you get lost in, you just get lost in a meditative space where you're like, you're not rowing very hard on the ocean because you're mm. rowing 12 hours a day. Yeah. So you, you just get lost in a, 
meditative space where you've, you're thinking back to childhood experiences, childhood thoughts, and or just random, you know, when we talked about early, like you're reflecting. Yeah. You need to create the space to emotionally process because your your body holds this the emotional energy that if it's not expressed properly, it becomes toxic and it'll affect your mind and it'll affect you know how you show up. And so it you know, I almost call it like adventure therapy. You know, a lot of guys with PTSD soldiers like to go through this, or people going through midlife crises like to go through this. It's like it, you disconnect from society, you disconnect from all um, you know, expectations that are, are being placed upon you. And you can, you sit in there and then thoughts come up, emotions come up and you, you're in a safe space and you just kind of, you, you process them and, uh, and then you're able to you know, let them go. And, um, that was, that was the most surprising experience. I wasn't expecting that when I was going across the ocean. So if you say, what surprised you the most, it was this therapy, yeah, you know, ad- cool. adventure therapy that um, was definitely worth it. And then, um, yeah, we we capsized in the Bermuda Triangle, but you can watch you can watch my TED talk. You know that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We'll just sort of we throw can't. that out there. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, in <laughs> passing. By the way, I just you know capsized in the Bermuda Triangle, but you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Buy my book. Okay. <laughs> if you're interested in that story, which is insane, by the way, um, check out the TED Talk. Yeah, because I wanted to get into this this work. Hundred percent. Let's do it. So, out of all of this, and by the way, that is like legit. Should totally check out check out that TED Talk because it is an insane story. What I'd love to know now is like you are shifting into leadership um, training, leadership coaching, and mm-hmm. leveraging on this idea of responsibility and bringing teams together. Obviously that's a great expertise of yours. And so I'd love to know about the book, first of all, because um, I know how challenging it is to, to write a book and get one out there. So congratulations on, on, on that. So tell me a little bit about the book. And then we were speaking earlier about this incredible workout this, that you've been giving to business people as like a hyper effective tool to get in shape really, really quick. So love to hear about, you know, this shift into taking what you've learned as an athlete and now translating that into what lots of people in, in business can do. And obviously business means like yeah, yeah. life and like there's all sorts of different applications of this, not just in business, but love to hear about what you're up to now. Also, yeah. So what I'm up to now, I'm, you know, I'm an executive business coach and I specialize in strategic deployment and leadership effectiveness. So I work with mid-sized corporations, leaders in mid-sized corporations who have, who have teams that they're building and they have strategies that they need to clarify and implement. So often, you know, when a new leader comes into a new position, they'll have to rebuild the team. And so it's nice to have someone who's not on their team to talk about rebuilding the team. And that's, that's where I, I be, um, uh, that's where I add a lot of value. And then we come and we do works on, you know, identifying values, uh, you know, clarifying vision, mission, uh, figuring out how to uh, roll that out effectively uh, through the organization. How do you, you know, you have to generate strategy in the upper level, upper management of the organization. And then middle management is given resources to implement that strategy. And then the frontline people are actually doing the stuff. So how can we be more effective in, you know, in 
in that. And so I come in as a resource as, uh, you know, to, you know, to teach that as well as, you know, basic leadership skills, which is you know, clarifying the future that you see and figuring out how to map that out in a, in a process to make it happen and, uh, and then staying accountable to the process and then influencing other people to make that vision happen. So the executive coaching, if, if anyone needs, I help people with, uh, so you're coming into a new role or you're getting to the end of the role and you're sitting, you're thinking legacy. I'm leaving in two, three years. I need, I, uh, I, you know, I need to have someone come in after me. I don't want this, this thing that I built in this organization to die. So I, I'll work alongside you to build a, a succession plan and, uh, small business owners as well. Sometimes they feel, uh, you know, they need some distance from, from their staff and things. So I, I work on the side just to help with basic leadership strategy, um, influence, uh, type, type issues and, um, help people, you know, work their way up, help the work. And the other last one is ambitious people, right? They, they want to move up the ladder faster. And so I'm just, you know, help, help people do that. It's pretty, I'm impressed. I work with hyper ambitious people, people who have high personal standards, yeah. <laughs> kind of like me, but <laughs> it's fun. Like it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, it's super a lot of fun. fun when you get to take what you know and give it to people who can really leverage that knowledge to make a difference in their lives. It's one of the coolest things ever. I love watching that. It's so fun. Yeah. That's neat. And so then this book, right? The responsibility. I know I've read some of your books too. The, you know, super bodies. That was a cool (laughs) one. Uh, The, and the book was, this was a labor of love over 10 years. Um, Wow. Myself, my background's in engineering, not a trained writer. And uh, I had to go through that process of figuring out how I wanted to write. What's um, your voice and all that other stuff. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And I stopped and started a few times. You know, when you're writing a book, especially one that has a lot of biographical information, there's the book you have to write for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then there's the book you have to write for other people. It's, right. it's a big like, process your bullshit, get it out, and then you know, write it so that people can actually pick it up and get some value from it. Yeah. So the book, the book has three sections. One are compelling stories, you know, stories from the Olympics, from the ocean, from, uh, you know, some, from some of my uh, public speaking uh, experiences. And then we move into business case studies and then uh, leadership development exercises. So it's, it's very much geared towards leadership development, personal development, and people who have a bent for, <coughs> for great sports stories. And it's been, it's a bestseller now, which is great. It's been on. Congrats. It's awesome. Few, Good job. Which is nice. That's, yeah. that was pretty cool. I saw it in <laughs> I saw it in the airport the other day. I didn't, I, uh, what do they want? They wanted like $5,000 a month for me to place the book in the airport. And I was like, ah, I, I don't have that. <laughs> yeah. But the other day I, I walked in and they said, you know, everyone's going to get selected and put it in the airport and, uh, and it got selected. So that would, felt pretty good to like just browse through the business books. And I'm like, Hey, there it is. Yeah. That's super <laughs> People cool. People are liking it. Cool. <laughs> <Right> <laughs> and, uh, think yeah so the book you know the book talks i go through various subjects and we talk about failure mm-hmm. you know success and failure are two sides of the same coin yeah uh, and different ways to mitigate against failure mitigate against fear of failure talk about goals avoiding toxic goals if we set goals that are toxic you know feeding our desires instead of feeding our values mm-hmm. then we 
we self-sabotage or we finally get them and we're very unfulfilled. And, and so, uh, and then we talk about sharing leadership uh, and making sure that we're sharing leadership for success. And then we talk about stress, using stress effectively. Uh, we talk about being a pro, being a professional and how we show up. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about recovery strategies. So strategies in, in a, managing addiction, uh, you know, as an athlete, you are, uh, you become addicted to activity. Mm -hmm. And I found even after athletics, I found I'd be that addicted to, you know, substances and behaviors. And so that was, that seems something I had to, I think a lot of people have to deal with that. Um, I'm really proud of that chapter in that piece. I know it's helped a lot of people already. Yeah. Um, the coaching and mentoring is one piece, uh, communication, resiliency, and uh, the final piece is a bit more spiritual and waxing philosophical, but this idea of providence, hmm. um, that uh, we need to have complete faith in the future of our vision. We need to have complete faith in our vision, you know, more than hoping, just a deep, deep belief. And we need to work really, really hard. And when we have faith and when we have hard work, you know, we make the future happen and something in the universe actually conspires in our favor mm -hmm. and, and things start to show up that we would, that would have never showed up if we were just working hard and didn't really believe that was happening. Or if we were just, I believe it's going to happen, but we don't really do the work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, it's, that's a problem. Yeah. So like <laughs> faith, action, providence, it makes it happen. And then things come into your life to make it happen. And then there's, there's tools in there. I've got a goal setting too. I remember I, I talked, I taught this to your, your guys at the U of T, yeah. you know, clear goal setting. And so that's in the book. It's, it's smart goals 2.0. Talk about building a story narrative therapy. I learned how to tell a really great story when I got into public speaking mm -hmm. and found that it was a very powerful psychological tool. It's also a very powerful marketing tool. So very uh, tool for making better decisions is also there. And then a bunch of recommendations of other books to read. So it's, you know, it's a book geared for people who want to grow, be, be better humans. So. That's awesome, which is pretty much everyone listening to this. If you're listening to this podcast and you've made it through an hour of us shooting, talking so far, like there, it's for you. Um, so one of the questions I ask everyone that comes on the show is what's something that everyone could try that's new or exciting or interesting that would push them a little bit, um, something that you'd recommend. So this might be a good opportunity for you to tell us about this workout that you've created that a lot of your business people are loving. Yeah, so business people, and typically people who, who get this work, they've had some experience on the rowing machine. Okay. And, and they, they, know how, they know some basic technique of it. And the, the basis or the, the basis of this comes from a, a two-kilometer rowing test or mm -hmm. a five-minute VO2 max baseline test. So you have to put in maximal effort. You, and you know, workouts are arts art as much of it as it is a science so you can adapt this to to cycling or running or something else where you have a power meter mm -hmm. and you can do a, a five approximately five minutes of maximal effort and so you do your maximal and so i'm gonna i'm just gonna present this as as a rowing machine and the listeners i'm sure you're smart enough you can adapt it if you want to yeah. do it as a runner okay. so you go on your rowing machine and we set it for two kilometers and you push as hard as you can uh, for two kilometers and you get your baseline test and your, your, what will you'll get is a split time. And then your split time will be the average time it takes for you to, to go 500 meters. And this split time becomes, 
your metric for this workout. And what this indicates is your lactic threshold. This is the threshold at which you, your body starts to produce lactic acid. And so uh, this workout will both increase your anaerobic capacity and your aerobic capacity at the same time. That's what it's gearing toward. It's, it's trying to actually maximize those. It's, it's a bit organic, so it, it, it plays on feel. So you'll develop some feel as an athlete doing this, and you'll get to figure out how to push, push your limit of failure uh, in, a, in a unique and, and healthy way. So the idea is you get your anaerobic baseline. You know, say you do your 2K test, it takes seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> that's 145. It'll take you one minute and 45 seconds to go 500 meters. So you go and you... Uh, you, you sit down the rowing machine, you know your baseline is 145, you set the rowing machine for 30 minutes. Actually, one step back, you warm up first, right. always warm up. <laughs> always warm up. Always warm up. So take five <laughs> to 10 minutes, row slow, row hard, take a few hard strokes until you break a little bit of a sweat, but you take five minutes, stretch a little bit. And I've, I've got a, I was gonna, I'll give you a link that you can put onto this that has this whole thing written out. And there's I've got a video of, of how to like stretch and do some things on the rowing machine to help you, you warm up, make sure that you're, you're limber, you're, you have mobility, right? Flexibility plus strength equals mobility. Yeah. So, so you're a mobile athlete that uh, you won't get injured. You're warmed up so that you can actually maximize the workout. So you're warmed up, take, take you about five minutes to do that. 30 minutes on the rowing machine, you know, your target uh, split is a minute 45 and you go out, you, you want to hit 145 or below. And so you go and you, you look at that and you watch it, you watch it, you watch it. And then probably around, like I said, around 45 seconds to a minute, that's when the glycogen is burnt up and when you're, you're clicking over. And so then, then you hold that for as long. Maybe the first time you do, you can hold for 90 seconds. Sometimes you're not completely warmed up. So maybe you hold it for a minute and then, or maybe you hold it for 47 seconds or a minute 10 or whatever. But you eventually you reach this point where, you hit, you see 146 on the screen. And the moment you see 146, like one second or more above your baseline, you have to stop no matter what. So you stop. And usually there's some, if you're pushing hard, there's some pain. So you're, you're wincing. So you just got to yeah. think, relax your face, self-compassion. You know, you know, I'm getting stronger, positive self-talk, take some press, get, regain the composure and then start rowing low, light and long. So low stroke rate, um, light, light pressure, and try to be as long as you can in, in the strokes. And then you watch and you wait for the next minute to tick over. So say you've rowed a minute 15, then you regain your composure and you're seeing the clock approach. It's, you know, 28 25, 28, 20, 28, 15, 28, 10. You're getting to that 28 minute mark and you, you start to ask yourself the question, do I go now mm. or do I go on 27? And that's the one option you give yourself. Okay. And if you feel the energy and the power, you go on 28. And then you okay. go and you hold that as long as you can. So let's say you go, I, I, I've got the power. You go, you go on, on 28 and you're able to hold it for 90 seconds at time. And so then you go 28, 27, so you're at 26, 30. Then you watch it count down. You're approaching 26. Like, Do I go on 26? There's no way. No, I'm like, I need the recovery. So you take the recovery for the next minute. And then you hit um, 
25. And when you're at 25, you go again, you go as hard as you can. And say you, you start rowing and all of a sudden you're thinking about, oh, what am I going to make for dinner? And then your <laughs> yeah. split goes up like, yeah. to 146. Like, you idiot, stop. You can't row when it's 146. You get distracted. Yeah. That's your punishment. You don't get to pull hard. And so you have to stop every time it goes. So you get distracted, you stop. And so the next minute you start. And so the, the pieces will generally last anywhere from 15 seconds to two minutes. Sometimes they can wow. last at two minutes and 30 seconds. And this is, this is prime lactal threshold training, but it's, it's also counterintuitive because the moment it gets hard, so hard that you can't hold the split, you stop. So it's, um, it trains your lactose threshold in a, a unique way. Instead of saying, I'm going for a minute on, minute off, which is kind of the standard way, and I'm going to push that minute. Even if I hit my lactic threshold failure at 45 seconds, I'm still going to push for the next 15 seconds. This is like the moment you hit your failure point, you stop and you start recovering again. And then you, you start again and you keep hitting. And, and you should... Like at a minimum, you should be able to get at least eight, eight, nine minutes of work. So like at a minimum, you should be able to get eight minutes of work in the 30 minutes at the threshold. If you can get 15 minutes or more of work, your split is is too high. And lower mm -hmm. to second, a second and, and come back at 144 the next day. And uh, you could take, you know, takes to recover from, you know, this type of anaerobic threshold work takes around 36 hours. So you could you could be really anal about this and do it every 36 hours, or you could you know, be like a corporate athlete who has job and life and wife yeah. and kids. And uh, <laughs> you could do this like a couple of times a week as part of your broader training strategy of doing aerobic work, maybe some anaerobic work and doing some weights and doing some flexibility. This is a great way to, to train the threshold and you'll feel because it's power endurance, you will feel, You'll feel the gain in your aerobic work, definitely. Um, you'll feel work at the, the gain in, in your shorter work as well. Um, you'll recover faster when you're lifting weights and, uh, and that sort of thing. So it's it's a great piece of work. I'll send... Um, yeah, send it yeah. to me. I'll include it in the show notes. And okay. um, we'll throw the video up on the page. And uh, I will try this this week and let you know how it is. Oh, um, yeah. Just let me know. Miserable Seek. pain and suffering, courtesy of Adam. Thank you. Buddy. Well, and it's, I appreciate that. The funny thing is, I'm going to say you. It's this was counter. This was hard for me to actually do as an athlete. Yeah, because you you don't go into that suffer space because the moment you hit the suffering and the split goes up, you're done. Right. Cool. Okay. So it's. It's 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 a bit counterintuitive, and that's why I think it's really good for people who exercise on their own. Um, Got it. The like that's that's why I really like this space because the moment that you hit that suffer pain space, then right. you have, and then and then you see the you know then you see the split go up. Like the magic yeah. is, can I hit? Can I suffer and keep my performance? Right. Because I think this is this is the lie we tell ourselves as you know as middle aged performers is that I can keep suffering and keep pushing and you think that you're maintaining performance because I've suffered in the past and I've pushed through but your performance is going down and down and down and down right. so you're allowed to suffer you're allowed to go in the pain cave but the moments your performance also fails you have to stop okay and that 
that's the magic of the workout. And it's, um, it was counterintuitive when I first started doing it, but I, you know, personally, I've found it to be, to be really effective. I can just, it, it surprises me at how, how little suffering I have to do to gain the physiological benefits and results. Amazing. Um, and um, so, yeah, let me know, let me know what you think. I'd be curious right. to see your input as like a <laughs> physiologist and a guy who's, yeah. you know, trains and, and does things and just who's, who's aware of your body just to see, but it's, it's a little complicated, but it's, you know, it has a lot of um, art in it and flexibility. Uh, so that like the general rules stay the same, but it, it allows you to work with your body as it is in the moment and, and maximizes its effectiveness in the moment. Super and cool. find, find healthy failure instead of unhealthy failure. Yeah. I like that. which is another topic for another day that we could dig into. Um, if people want to connect with you online and let you know how the workout goes, uh, learn about your speaking, learn about the responsibility ethic book, where can they uh, get in touch with you? Well, I'm, um, I'm active on LinkedIn. That's my profile of choice because mm-hmm. I work with a lot of uh, professionals you know, to, you know, like I said, in executive coaching and strategic deployment. I also do keynote speeches. So you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty proficient on that. Okay. I've got my own website. You can reach out to me on that, but it will go through my wife and my staff. If you send me a note okay. through the, the website, <laughs> LinkedIn, and, <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, Twitter, you can tweet. Right. So cool. some people feel like tweeting, you do the workout, tweet me, and then we can tweet back and forth and we can have a little Twitter conversation. Right on. So it's, it's creepspeak.com, <laughs> responsibilityethic.com for the book. Yes. And yeah. It's on Amazon and right on BookBub and Indigo and sweet. Adam, thank so you good. so much for taking the time, buddy. I really appreciate it. That was so much fun. We'll do it again. We'll dig deeper into all of this stuff. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Well, it's great. It's great to be here, Greg. And Creek with a K, K-R-E-E-K. That's uh, it's Estonian. Estonian. Oh, cool. Right on. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, everyone. Hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Adam. He's great. Super interesting guy, gaining massive amounts of experience in so many different areas. And as always, really, uh, you know, just giving of all of his knowledge and Uh, experience and uh, wisdom. So super helpful to have him around, especially in these times when leadership matters more than ever. So thanks for listening. If that was helpful, please share it. Uh, Please share your comments, good and bad on social at Dr. Greg Wells. If you can leave us a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely spectacular. We would really appreciate that. So that's it for now. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we will speak to you again really soon.